Good morning again. I'm Taylor Ince. I'm a pastor here at Sojourn Galleria, and it's just a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Really nowhere else I'd rather be. I did Hawaii this summer, so my wife's got family there, so we did that. But really, so truly I can say, nowhere else I'd rather be, not even there. So this week, we're talking about, as Austin said, I don't even need to, uh, every time he anchors, what we call what he just did, if you're new, anchoring. Every time he anchors, I feel like he gives a little mini-sermon, so I can kind of come in and just keep preaching, so it's great. He gave a, a great introduction to this four-week Life Together series, Who Are We in Light of Christ and How Should We Then Live? So this morning, we're talking about what Peter does in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, the first few verses, um, and we're talking about um, our life together as saints as a people that have been made holy by the blood of Christ. So I think a good way to intro that is something that happened this week. Mother Teresa, I think, was canonized or officially made a saint of the, of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and I think that's it. Woo, get a whoop out there. All right. Ecumenicity in the house. Um, yeah, God bless Mother Teresa. We will meet her in heaven, I'm sure. But we're not going to meet her in heaven because of all the good stuff she did. Um, or because the Roman Catholic Church just decided to canonize her. We're going to meet her in heaven because I believe that she, I think one of the things she said that I've said from the pulpit before is, uh, Jesus, I want to love you like you've never been loved before. What a prayer. And just the idea that she understood that that love that she had for him came from the fact that he loved her first. That he laid his life down for her, and that overflow in her life proceeded um, out from her in ways that we all know about. But it's not the Roman Catholic Church canonizing you that makes you a saint. That's the point. It's, uh, it's Jesus. It's his work and his giving us the faith to trust in him. He draws us to himself, as the prophet Hosea says, with cords of love. He draws us to himself, and he does the work of salvation, and he, from the instant we trust in him, makes us new and as righteous as he is. And he pays for those sins and has paid for them on the cross. And so we... As a church, as a people, this isn't the church, we are the church. As a people who trust in Christ and who follow him, we've been made new, we've been made holy, we've been set apart for a purpose, for his purpose, for his mission in the world to be his body. And we are, the word saint means holy, or set apart, we are holy. Um, So we don't have to be canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. None of us probably will be, for at least two reasons. (laughs) Um, And sort of to get a broad overview of, as we walk through, this sermon, but also this series, before we jump into this text, I, just, I guess I'd say one more thing. Um, take a step back and look at the biblical timeline and the, and the timeline of all of history. I know it sounds like a lot, but it's fairly easily reduced. Um, the Bible tells us that, we, that God created us. He created all things. He spoke all things into existence. He's separate from creation, but very much involved, intimately involved in it. And he made all things for his pleasure and out of the overflow of his being and who he is. And he made it... Th- on the, at the final deal, the cherry on top of his ice cream sundae, which is creation, is man and woman. He made humans in his image to glorify him and to spread, to multiply and to spread throughout the earth and to fill the earth with his, with his image and to rule it and to cultivate it for his glory and to enjoy him in so doing. And then they turned from him, our, our parents, and, and they fell and all of creation with them fell because they were in, they were put in dominion over creation. And so we, we who issue from Adam, who come from Adam, are also born sinful. Not, we don't just sin, we're sinners. We, it's what we do in our broken state. And so God made 
Adam and Eve to rule creation, but they fell, they rebelled, and all creation with them. And then Israel comes along a little bit later in the biblical narrative, in the biblical march. Israel comes along, and some people will refer to Israel, the nation of Israel that comes from Abraham, the man of faith, as the corporate Adam. They were also, like Adam, to, they were given a garden land. They were put in a garden land, the promised land, just like Adam and Eve were. And they were told to be fruitful and multiply. Here's a land, I'm going to make you a people. Just like he said to Adam and Eve. Let's do it again. Show the world who I am. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill it with my image. Israel failed. The whole Old Testament from Genesis 12 to Malachi 4 is a story of their failure. So you have Adam, you have the corporate Adam, and then you have the second Adam, so-called in Romans 5, Jesus, the true Israel, the true Son of God, who comes along and does what Adam didn't do, what Israel didn't do. He obeys the Father from the heart. And rather than getting the benefits of that and getting to be fruitful and multiply, he takes our sin upon himself. He pays the penalty that all that are in Adam deserve to pay. And he begins the process of a new creation whereby his body, the church, goes out into all the earth to fulfill what Adam was commissioned to do but didn't do and what Israel was commissioned to do but didn't do. And so that's our life together as saints is a mission to fulfill the great commission, which is really, I call it the second great commission that Jesus gives. You know, um, go and I have all authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He told Adam the same thing, basically. Be fruitful and multiply. But it didn't work out. But praise be to God, there was no plan B. Jesus was the plan all along. He has fulfilled what Adam couldn't do and what Israel couldn't do. So in him, we are his body. And Peter's talking about a little bit what that, because of what Jesus has done, because he's fulfilled that, we're given this commission to go and see creation renewed in his name, to go and see people won to Christ and brought from death to life, and to see the, the culture around them change, to see things brought to life. So that's what Peter's talking about here, uh, sort of an overview. Let's dive into this text. Um, as saints, we're to be a people, just four points this morning, okay? We're going to pop through them. Straining, we're to be a people straining, we're to be a people fighting, we're to be a people craving, and lastly, um, we are being built into a home for God. So let's, let's start with straining. As saints, we are to be a people straining. If you look, uh, our official text was given um, by those who put this series together as First Peter 2, 1 through 5, but... It starts off, so, so kind of right in the middle of a thought. So we want to back up a little bit and look at 1 Peter 1.22. And if you have your Bible or if it's on the screen, 1 Peter 1.22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And one of the things Peter's doing here is he's pairing truth with obedience to the truth with love, which comes from that. Um, and my mom would always say, you know, truth and love, that's how we want to talk to each other and, and treat one another in our family and those that are outside of our family. We want to be people that speak truth. Um, often you can do one, but not the other. You can, you think you're doing one, but not the other. You can, you can have, be a truth speaker and maybe pride yourself in that, but you're harsh and you can be cold and even doctrinaire, um, and not loving at all. You're just constantly hurting people. Um, or you can think that you're loving and, and try to love and, and just sort of uh, let bygones be bygones and never speak truth and never confront people with what needs to be, you know, be the doctor who 
sees the cancer, but you never point out the cancer and just try, hey, let's just keep, keep rocking. I don't want to rain on your parade, but that's not really loving, is it? That's not a good doctor. So being people that speak truth and that obey the truth and out of that love one another. So being people who in Christ hold both of those in our hands. Um, again, we, we often try to pit one against the other, but actually it's Christ alone who brings us into a life where we can be truth speakers with each other and with the wider world, with this local area that he's put us into contact with in, in our jobs, in the, with the people that we develop relationships with, our neighbors, shop owners. But we're also a people of deep and earnest and self-sacrificial love. It's what Jesus, it's only possible in Christ, truly. It's, what, it's who he is. Jesus is the truth. He's the very word of God. We look at him and his life, and, and we see what he did on the cross for us, and it says to me, it's a word of truth that says to me, this is, that's what I deserve, the cross. Like Peter said in the first sermon preached by the church in Acts 2, you crucified him, but actually he used God and his sovereignty and goodness and love, used and choreographed uh, the evil that you would perpetrate, the cross of Christ, to save you. So come now and repent of your sins and be saved through that cross that you put him on. Um, so this is, this is Christ in all of his truthfulness about who we are, our true state. Um, and yet we see the cross as an indictment of who we are, but also here's how loved you are, that God would literally give his life up for you. And so as not just people that imitate Christ, but people that have trusted in him and have his very spirit and heart within us, we fellowship with the living God through Christ. We ought to be people who love one another sacrificially. We lay down our rights, our rights that we're told in America we have and that our flesh tells us we have. We lay them down and we love one another first and then a wider world around us. And, and, but we also speak truth and that's hard, but it's good. Um, the last thing I'll say about this before moving to point two um, is that Peter says here, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That word earnestly, it's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross in Luke 22. Um, it says that Jesus prayed on the ground, face in the dirt. The word is earnestly, same Greek word. And then this phrase after that is, and he sweat drops of blood. And then he went to the cross. And we know that Jesus was contending for us. He was doing battle with spiritual forces beyond our understanding in that garden. And that's the same word that Peter uses here, saying, love one another in that way. Earnestly, contending, fighting. Um, so if, if, there's, if there's an image for each point, if, if you think, we all think with images, um, don't think of an elephant. You know, I mean, we, we, all, we all think of images. Um, think of a servant. Think of this point um, being, they've already forgotten, we are people as saints who uh, ought to be straining or striving to love one another in truth, right? Think of, think of this image as the image of a servant who, whose highest ambition is to go low, who, who face in the dirt is striving to outserve one another because of what Christ is and because of who he's made us. So, so servants. So second point, as saints, we're not only to be striving and straining to love and truth, but we're to be a people fighting. Look at 1 Peter 2.1, the sort of formal beginning of our text. So put away all malice, Peter says, and all deceit. So in light of who you are, right? In light of what Jesus has done for you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. 
So notice that he says to do some things here. Put these things away that, that tend to be so delicious that you tend to operate in, in your flesh. I mean, I, these things are very familiar to me, these five things. I operate in these more than I want to admit. Um, but he says, he doesn't just say, put these things away. It's not the beginning of his letter. He, he spends a large part of chapter 1 saying, again, here's what Christ has done for you. Here's what he's come to do. Here's who you are in him. Do no good of your own because of his great love for you. Therefore, because of that, put these things away. Um, why these five things? Well, I, th- I think a few reasons, probably a bunch more too, but just a few. Um, Peter's just spoken of how um, we ought to live loving each other earnestly because of what Jesus has done and because of our identity, who we are in him. But these things are the opposite of love. Um, so love helps and love heals the body and love goes out of its way to serve other members who are hurting and to honor, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, the weaker vessel. Instead of honoring the people that are strong and beautiful, we do the opposite, um, or we're called to. Just, just as Christ loved us, he comes after us sinners who hated him, as, as Chris said in his, in his beautiful prayer. It's one of my favorite parts of the gathering every week, by the way, when Chris prays. I just love it. Um, but so love helps and heals the body it heal, and it heals the saints. These things harm. They do the exact opposite. Um, so I think Peter still has the body in mind here. Who are we as saints? Don't do things that tear the body down. These things do. There are also things that are word-based and Peter's just talked about truth in love. Well, this is the opposite of truth in love. This is, this, these five things, and Peter could have picked a bunch, so why these? Looking for commonalities. These five things are falseness in hatred. I mean, they're hateful and they're false. And they're often done with a smiling face. Each one of these can be done with a smiling face. If you look at each one of them, um, disdain in the heart, envy. You can, you can be envying the very person that you're treating really well on the surface that's right in front of you, but really kind of wishing that they were not. It's not good that you exist. I wish I had your stuff. Um, hypocrisy, slander. These things are... Uh, they're done, they're, they're done with a surface of, of, of smiling, with a, surf, a false surface of um, presenting one thing and being another, the duplicitous. They're the opposite of what Peter has called us to and what he said that we are in Christ and who Christ is to us. Um, and I just want to ask, you know, just looking at these things, thinking about these things, ask yourself if you operate in these things. Um, do a little bit, a five second diagnostic as you sit there. Is your speech, is your behavior characterized by backbiting, by talking behind people's back, by gossip, by hypocrisy? Are you with others who you really are, who God knows you to be? And if not, if there's any part that you need to confess that this is bringing up, that's part of what God's word is for, is to convict us of sin. Take this time to confess to him. Take the time Afterwards, when we have the prayer team in the wings during communion and afterwards to come and pray and to confess. And that's part of our life together is confessing our sins to one another, being transparent um, in our conviction and then helping, having others help us to walk out of these things. Um, So on that note, I want you to take heart because Peter's not saying that we're going to be free of these things. what to, how do we know that? How do, how, how do we know that he's not expecting that we're completely free of these things? 
because of what he says. He says, he, he doesn't say these things shouldn't be anywhere in sight. He says, put them away. And he's talking to the church. He's talking to believers. He's talking to us. And not, I'm not assuming all of us are believers. If you're not, if you haven't trusted in Christ and looked to him to pay the price that you deserve to pay to God and, and um, to give you his full righteousness through his life. Um, man, I'm glad you're here. But a lot of us are believers and um, this church, was this visible church, was full of lots and lots of, of believers, of true followers of Christ, and yet Peter's speaking to them. He's writing this letter to them, and he's saying, it's actually kind of to the church abroad in modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor. And he's saying, put these things away. I know they're present in some degree, but put them away. He's saying fight. Again, back to that, ser- as servants we ought to, sorry, as saints we ought to fight. Um, we ought to fight because these things, like I said, they, they're tasty. Each one of them, except for envy. Envy is the only one of these five that doesn't provide any pleasure. From the get-go, envy, it just eats you up. It's just a bitter pill from the start. The rest of them are quite tasty, it, um, at least in the beginning. But he's saying that, look, you ought to be pursuing something that you should cultivate a greater taste for and ought to have a taste for as a, new, as a believer, and that is for the milk of the word, which we'll get to. Um, so he's saying fight, put these things away. So if we could sort of sloganize what he's saying here, um, he's saying, he's kind of using the Nike slogan, which would be just do it, right? You have the strength in Christ. You are a new creation. Put these things away. Do it in your relationship with the Lord. Do it as a body together in that vertical reality that Chris, that Chris is talking about um, every week in the passing of the peace that Christ has brought us into this transparency with each other. I know who I am in Christ. I'm perfect. I'm holy. I'm righteous. But I need to put things away daily. I need to repent of things daily. Help me, brother. Help me, sister, to do that. And how can you unless you're speaking the truth to me and I'm speaking the truth to you about what I see but also what I see in my own heart. So um, just do it. But then we've kind of, we kind of see also that he's not just saying just do it. He's also appealing in this next verse, in verse 3, to look, crave the milk, long for the milk that will nourish you as a new creation in Christ. Um, and we'll talk about what that is. If, if, uh, that, if he appealed to the Nike slogan, just do it, he's appealing to the Sprite slogan. I know I'm being anachronistic, but uh, he's appealing to the Sprite slogan here, obey your thirst. Okay? And I've taken this from someone else who does a Bible study, Dwight Edwards, who does a Bible study on Thursdays. It's too good. I couldn't, I couldn't refuse. Um, obey your thirst. So he's saying, look, don't just muscle up. Know that you, as a new creation, have a God-implanted desire for him, and only he, regardless of whether you're old or new creation, regardless of who you've trusted in, only he's going to satisfy you. Um, and in the end, it's really knowing that. Like I talked about last week, it's really knowing that, as Thomas Chalmers in his sermon, the expulsive power of a new affection, knowing that Christ, I'm made for him, I'm made to desire him, and only he's going to satisfy my chief desires, and the other things that I run after, they're not going to satisfy because I wasn't made for them. It's like putting milk in your, ga- in your gas tank. It just doesn't work. It's like eating ash. It, it first might be some, a tasty morsel, but it's eventually going to turn to ash, and it's not going to fuel you. We're made to be fueled um, by Christ. We're made to be satisfied by God alone, and that's what Christ brought us to. He came to die and to, and to live again so that we might be brought to God. So anything else that you pursue in your life, is going to provide continual disappointment. And yet, one of the ways that I know that I'm so broken 
in my flesh and that, and that Christ truly did come to make me totally new is that I know that cognitively. I know that nothing else is going to satisfy, but every morning I wake up pursuing other things. Every morning. It's like I, every morning I drift into atheism and I have to remind myself again in the scriptures, in prayer, in community, in worship of the truth of the fact that I'm made for God alone. But in my flesh, I'm just drifting. I'm constantly drifting and pursuing other things. Um, so not just a fight, not just a new taste that we've been given as new creatures in Christ, but also we have a new power. Again, this is sort of implicit in the fact that he says, just put, them, put these things away, these false things that we do behind people's backs with these facades up. Um, he's saying that we, have, we actually have a power to, uh, to put these things away and to embrace truth and love. There was a professor at a Christian training college in, in Britain that, that he was a missionary for a long time in, in, uh, in Asia to Muslims chiefly. And he said, you know, I realized when Muslim, my Muslim friends would talk to me about how it was impossible to look at a woman who wasn't totally covered, even, even if her ankles or her wrists or her neck were showing, it was like, you, you can't not lust after, his Muslim friends would say, after a woman like that. And he said, I finally realized it was a theological issue. They don't have the Spirit of God inside of them. By faith in what Christ has done for them, they don't have God residing in, in them. They're dead in their sins and trespasses. They're trying to clean themselves up to get to God, to obey Him, to do a certain amount of things right. We are new creatures in Christ. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who's new, qualitatively, period. That's, you're either dead or you're alive. Those are the two races, if you will, on the earth. That's it. You're dead or you're alive. And um, so the power of the Holy Spirit, not only to resist temptation, but to actually have new appetite. To see a woman, not in a lustful way, but to see a woman as a creature of God and, and to change in our appetites to where we don't, we don't even see that anymore or less and less and less. That's possible and it's what Christ died for for us. So not just a new taste, a new power, but also a new perspective. Um, seeing as we read about this reality that Peter is talking about, that Christ died to make us a body, a family. Uh, he died to make us saints. He died to make us a home for God, which we'll finish with gives us a new perspective that this person that is annoying me right now, Christ died for. God Almighty became a, a human being and remains a human being and laid his life down for them and literally was crucified on the cross and suffered their hell in their place. That's how much he values that person. That's how much I ought to value that person. And knowing the same thing about yourself. What is it? Love one another as you love yourself. To love yourself in that way because you know that you've been loved by Christ. Not because you think you're awesome. <laughs> and then to see others in that light, it brings a new perspective. Christ laid his life down for this person. It gives us a whole new value for our brother and sister. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, human love is directed to the other person for his own sake. So human love becomes something like, what can you give me? What do I like about you? And then when I cease to like that thing, when you get old or you lose that talent or you have an accident, my love goes bye-bye. Right? Human love is directed to the person for his own sake. Spiritual love, or Christian love, loves him for Christ's sake. Because of what Christ has done for that person, and be, when, what, is, what does Jesus say? He says, when you love the least of these, when you love your fellow man, when you love your enemy, the person who's trying to destroy you, 
the person who makes fun of you, the person who hates you, the person who ridicules you, maybe the person that you just perceive is ridiculing you, but your perceived enemy, whoever it is, um, you're loving me. You're loving me. Bonhoeffer again, he wrote a book called Life Together. So this is a, we're in a Life Together series, so I can't help myself. So you're going to hear some Bonhoeffer in this next four weeks. Bonhoeffer again, he says, in Life Together, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal. It's not something we're aspiring to. I'm not trying to cheerlead my way. I'm not trying to sort of rah-rah you into this. I'm trying to show you it's not just an ideal, it's a divine reality. It's a reality that I want us to live into. It's a better way of understanding the way things really are. You are a family in Christ. You are being built together, whether you like it or not. Living into that, living consistent with what Christ has already done. And then Bonhoeffer, one last time, he says this in Life Together. He says, he who looks upon his brother should know that he will be eternally united with him in Jesus Christ. So the idea there that we are forging relationships and building relationships that will last forever. Don't just have the next 60 years or the next 30 years, depending on how old you are, 20 years in view. See yourself and others as eternal creatures and live in that way. So the first image was one of a servant, the second of a boxer. Um, uh, Excuse me. Uh, Yeah, I would say as, okay, so if you have the first image as a servant, have this one as a boxer, someone that's fighting with not just new power perspective, but new taste as well. Um, thirdly, as saints, we're to be a people craving. Look at First Peter 2, 2 and 3. He says this, he says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. So we have the image of, um, of a servant and of a boxer, and this one is perhaps of a, of a milk-hungry infant. It's pretty obvious, right? That's what Peter's putting in front of us. We ought to be like babies that are just crying out for milk. And for a lot of us here, I mean, I feel like half of this room has just had a new kid or has a little baby. Um, and so it won't take a lot of imagination to know how badly infants want their milk. So how badly do they want their milk? That's how much we should crave the milk of God, which I'll go on to say, I think, is the word and more than the word. Um, how badly do... Infants need that milk to stay alive. It's essential. They have to have it. And Peter's saying, it's the same way with you. And, and to the degree that you understand, not that ideal, but that reality, you will thrive. Feeding on the Word of God. Feeding on the Scriptures. Spending time in the Word so that your roots don't dry up. Communing with God through it. And we'll get there. Um, so, He says this, he says, that, okay, crave, crave the pure spiritual milk, what? That by it you may grow. So again, by what? The milk, which is probably the word um, of, of the scriptures that Peter's speaking about. God's word to us about who he is and who we are in light of, of that and then how to live. Um, and notice too, just before I, I continue on with, with the word here and what Peter's talking about, um, he says, that you might grow up into salvation. I just want to say, salvation isn't, it's not something that's given to you piecemeal. It's something that you grow up into. It's a, it's a reality that Christ gives you as a deposit. We are saved. And, and Peter uses the, the turn of phrase, we are to grow up into what's already ours by faith in Christ. It's like a, a little boy growing up into his father's suit. It's already there. It's already given. Maybe a better metaphor is that of a seed growing up into a tree. Um, in 123, um, 
a seed is exactly the, the word that Peter uses. And um, hear this quote from a commentator. He says, Begin with what you know about seeds. Seeds possess within themselves the power to bring forth life. For instance, we know that the perishable seed of an oak tree, after falling into the ground, possesses the power to bring forth new life. In essence, the sapling emerges because of all the necessary life-giving properties were present in the seed from the beginning. In other words, everything we have, everything we need to grow up into a full salvation in Christ, is already ours. It's already been bought for us. It's already been given to us. We simply, the sanctification journey is walking out that which has been given to us already, that which been, has been put in. Um, and again, like I said, back to the milk and the word, it is, I believe, the scriptures that Peter refers to. How do we know God if not through his special revelation that tells us not just about how great he is, but how loving, how merciful, how he took on the nature of a servant to save us how he went to the cross for us. How, if we neglect this, can we know God? We really can't know him in his his particulars and in his compassion and in his heart. Um, But notice, Peter goes on to say, I think it's more than just studying the scriptures. He goes on to say in verse 3, what? 1 Peter 2, 3, he says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So not he doesn't say if if indeed you've tasted that your Bible is good. Studying your, your Bible, marinating in the scriptures, meditating on the word day and night like the Psalm 1 man, like Joshua, like Jesus did, um, is the way to the Lord himself. Okay? This word, this small w word, is to lead us to the big w word, to the word incarnate, to Jesus Christ, the one who shows us and tells us exactly what God is like because he is God in the flesh. Um, If you look at Hebrews 4, other parts of the counsel of God confirm this, right? So if you look at Hebrews 4, verse 12, a lot of us know this verse. It's kind of like a fridge magnet verse. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do you hear how it has personal characteristics? Peter, excuse me, the author of Hebrews is talking about the scriptures here, but it's alive and it's active and it discerns. And then... The cat comes out of the bag in verse 13. And no creature is hidden from its sight. No, it's not what the Greek says. And no creature is hidden from his sight. See that seamless transition from the word written to him, God himself? And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word takes us to the word. If, if, if your time in the scriptures is just, if you just see it as a data crunch, as something to sort of check the box off and not to meet with the living God through it by faith with the, the life of his Holy Spirit inside of you, sitting across the table, face-to-face, having a conversation, listening, learning, loving, being loved. You're missing it. Um, the Pharisees in, John, uh, in John's Gospel in 5, starting in verse 39, Jesus says this to the Pharisees who had huge chunks of the Old Testament memorized. Some of them have the, they say, the entire... Hebrew Bible memorized. He says this to them. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. If we love the Bible but miss Jesus, we've missed the entire point of the Bible. The whole scriptures point to him and they are to take us to him. 
You can have the whole Bible memorized and spend an eternity apart from God in hell with his just wrath upon you. That's a fact. Come to Jesus. He's the reason for it. It's why we're here. Fourthly and finally, as saints were to be a people built into a home for God. Closing down this passage, Peter says in 2.4, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Um, Peter says at the beginning of that, at the beginning of 2.4, he says, as you come to him, he's talking about Jesus. And he says, as you come to him. That word come is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew, but the Greek translation, written about 200 years before Jesus came, um, was called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, a number of times, this word come is used of God's people coming to him, approaching him, and coming even to the tabernacle, which was sort of the, it was the temple when it was still a tent, when Israelites were in the wilderness before they, before they made Jerusalem their capital. Uh, it's used of co- approaching God and not dying in his presence, but coming and being in his presence with joy and peace. So approaching God and approaching his home, the temple. Um, what is Peter saying here? among other things, and using this kind of language of Jesus. Come to him. He's saying, come to God. He's saying, Jesus is God. And as we approach Jesus by faith and what he's done for us, and that he loves us that much, and that I'm that evil, and that I deserve what you took, and I accept that, and I believe on you, we approach God himself. And not only God himself, but we approach the temple, the meeting place between God and man, that the temple of non-living stones in the Old Testament pointed to. That was the, its whole purpose. It wasn't ever just so animal sacrifices could be made and take away sins. As, as uh, the author of Hebrews says, they actually, animal sacrifices don't take away sin. God's just. He, he doesn't think that the blood of a cow is going to take away your eternal sin before his face. That's just not possible. It was a pointer to the real temple, the fleshly temple, the meeting place of God and man. Jesus Christ is that temple. Not only, and this is what Peter's saying here, and this is what he goes on to say later, which we'll talk about in two weeks, I think, but not only is Jesus the only place where we can meet with God and not be destroyed, he is literally in himself as God incarnate, fully God and fully man. He is, I don't know if the word confluence is heretical or not. probably is. I've been reading up on heresies um, in in contravention of, of the creed of Chalcedon um, this week, so it's probably heretical, but Jesus is fully God, and he's fully man, and he is in himself the place where God and man meet, and in him and in him alone, he is the only door through which we may proceed to meet with God, to be with God. And when we come through him, we come and we find peace with God um, because of what he's done for us. Um, so Peter says here, Christ as the corner, he's the cornerstone of the temple. He is the temple, but he's also, he's the foundation stone, the cornerstone on which you as believers in him are being built. So you're being built into him in a living, intimate, real way that will last forever. As a home for God, the place where God dwells, and the place where people can find peace with God. So what has Jesus done? What has he created on earth to be the place where people can find peace with God, the church? us. We are emissaries of the fact that God has made a way for sinful humans to be with him 
to be loved by him, to, be, to move from death to life. Um, as the temple, at, we are being built into a temple, a spiritual um, house for God. So Jesus is the temple. He's also the sacrifice. He's the perfect sacrifice to which all those animals pointed all along. Um, all of, he paid for all the sins of those who would trust in him on that cross. He endured everything we deserve, all of our hell. He took because God is just. He can't let things off the hook. There's no off the hook with God. Either Jesus paid for it for you or you will pay for it. That's, that's it. And so Jesus, he's not just the temple, the place where God and man meet in peace. He's the sacrifice made there. And he, at, he's also the priest who offered himself. The one who stands between God and man and says, let me offer something innocent to die in the place of the guilty so the guilty can be with God. That's what Jesus is for us. He's our temple. He's our sacrifice. He's our priest. And in light of that, Peter says, again, you, the church, are being built onto who Christ is and what he's done for you as a home for God. You are the priests. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore be reconciled to God. Let the gospel burst forth from your lips in the way that you live in such a way that you understand that, that you're, there is no plan B for world conquest. There is no plan B for the Great Commission. There is no plan B for all things being renewed. Um, until he comes again, his plan is the church. For us to be ministers of reconciliation, that Jesus Christ has come and he's building us up into a home where God and man meet. Come join us and believe on Christ. Um, so a little bit of application and then we're, we're finished. Just a, two or three things. So first thing I want to say is, one way that I think we can live this out and one way that I think we do live this out well, better than any church I've seen, but we still have, what, an infinite distance to go, right? Um, is proximity. So living, living close together. We put a lot of emphasis on that as a church, and a lot of that comes out of texts like these. Um, a house, stones being built onto one another, they touch each other. They're close. They hang together. They can't, they can't be disparate. You have to share life to be a home. Literally, you have to be close together. Um, it helps. It helps to live out life together. Um, and, and it's commonsensical for most people in the history of the world, but for us, it's not because we tend to live far apart, especially in Houston, and that's really almost 100% a result of the automobile, which is something that came about, what, 100, a little over 100 years ago? So... Before 100 years ago, for all the history of the world, people lived, whether in cities, even more in cities on top of each other, or in villages, um, pretty much together in community. They knew each other. They shared life. And so that's really, we don't just want to do that because it's trendy. We want to we do it because we believe that that is one way that we can, a great way that we can express, uh, that we can share life together as a people of God, and that we can express to the world that we, um, that we are his home, and that we can invite people into that. Um, so the parish model is really built on that. We, you know, if you're new and we're encouraging you, which we are, to join, uh, jump into a parish. I mean, you don't have to join one, but jump in and go have a meal and meet these people and see who they are. Pick the, pick the place closest to you. That's what we would always encourage you to do um, for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that we want to be in community. We want to share life together. We want to be able to be close so we can know what we're struggling with, so we can share the truth in love um, with one another. 
and so that we can actually be a presence in our neighborhoods. And as we multiply out into more and more parishes, so that we can saturate, I think the old word that they used in the sojourn literature was so that we can infect our neighborhoods and infect the city. But they rightly changed that, that viral word to, uh, to saturate. So that we can saturate with real presence um, as the body of Christ, as a people called to be holy, to be set apart, but in, very much in the world where we live, how we share life, and in our jobs. Um, we can be a people who preach Christ in a winsome and loving way in truth to the world. Um, and yet, okay, I said this is the last time, Bonhoeffer again, he, you know, he sort of talks about in life together, we gather, yes, but not to be a holy uh, huddle. We gather to scatter. We're, on, we're people sharing life together, but on mission, multiplying and looking outward to see who's, Who's not trusted in Christ? Who's not with us? We're for them because Christ is for them because Christ laid his life down for them. And, you know, on 9-11, the obvious thing that comes to mind is, you know, Muslims, many of whom are wonderful neighbors, but in our American mindset, um, yeah, oftentimes they can be a threat to our nation state. But as Christians and our allegiance is to Christ first over the president of the United States, over, over the United States, um, as Christians, we ought to, see them with, through this filter as people to reach out to, as Austin prayed in his beautiful prayer, um, as people to invite in to see the beauty of Christ. They don't know what it's like to have a mediator. They don't know that kind of peace. They don't know that kind of assurance. They don't know that kind of love. Um, so we commune and share life together only to scatter into the world, into our workplaces, um, to spread Christ's kingdom there. Um, so to gather, to share life, but also to do justice Okay, to scatter, but also to do justice. Bonhoeffer, again, page one of his, of his book, he says this, So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, which we can tend toward an ingrown sort of life together if, we're, if we don't understand that Christ has called us to mission, the great commission, to go out and make disciples. Okay, it's not just about loving life together, and it is that, but through that, to explode, because of what Christ has done outward into the world, not... We don't belong in a seclusion of a cloistered life, but what? In the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. So we are to live life as Christians in the thick, Bonhoeffer says, of foes. Enemies of Christ that we're preaching to in every way we can with our words, with our actions, with the way we're laying our lives down with truth and love, with each other and with the wider world, be reconciled to Christ. Be reconciled to God through the God-man, Jesus Christ, the very temple of God. Um. And the last thing I'll say, and this will be literally very, very, very short, proximity but also longevity. Looking at how do we live together in this transient world where we have people coming in for a little bit and then leaving. And that, uh, some of that's just unavoidable. But looking in this very transient city life that we've been called into, we've been called to this particular place in the Galleria, what if we considered our jobs, what if we considered the, the homes that we buy or don't buy in light of the fact, this reality, not this ideal, but this divine reality that God has made us a body, that he's called us perhaps to this place to be together, to share life as a family, not as friends first. Friends choose each other based on likability, affinity. Family is made family. You don't choose your family. Um, but in we so often have in church just the idea that we just hop around until we find a place that we really like. And 
I understand some of that, but the fact is that we've been called to be a family. We've been called to this place. And is God putting that on your heart? And could you let that theology and that reality lead you to consider when you have a new job offer, when you have, um, you know, when you're considering a home that might be outside this area, if you've been called here and if you believe this, if this is what Christ has done, could that reality have such a premium on your values that it could actually affect the job that you say no to or yes to or the home that you buy or don't buy? And there have been examples of that um, here, and I've been encouraged by them, and in Heights, certainly, and in Montrose as well. Um, and I think I'm going to close with that. So together as saints, um, and thanks be to God for that word. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you uh, for this series, for the chance as a church to to sort of recall a vision, to cast a vision, to recast a vision, not based on what we think is neat or will work, but the divine reality, Lord, that has been brought to bear on this earth through the person of, and the work of Jesus Christ for us. That um, everything that we are grows out of who he is and what he's done for us. That Jesus, that you have reconciled us to yourself. And that we are a people called to be holy, called to live in the midst of foes, in the thick of foes, at our work, um, in our life together with those that we're reaching out to, with our neighbors and others, Lord God, and around the world. And I pray that um, you would help this to sink in in ways that I've talked about, in ways that I haven't talked about, in ways that I've missed, that, you, that your word and your spirit would continue just to knead this into our souls and change us and make us to conform more to the truth um, as we receive your love, love you in return and love one another and love our enemies. I thank you for who you've made us. I thank you for the call you've put on our lives. I thank you for what you're doing. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.